The EU Futures Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University. Welcome to the EU Futures Podcast, exploring the emerging future in Europe. I'm Olya Jordanian, an EU Futures Project Coordinator at BU Center for the Study of Europe. Today is March 2nd, and I talk to Marcus Bruno Meyer, a professor of economics and the director of Bentheim Center for Finance at Princeton University. I'm uh, Marcus Bruno Meyer. I'm happy to be here to, for this interview. I'm an economics professor at Princeton University and the director of the Bentham Center for Finance. Can you tell us a little bit about your connection to Europe? I grew up in Europe, I grew up in Germany, I also did my PhD in London, in the UK, the London School of Economics, so I'm generally connected uh, to Europe. I was also involved uh, in the European Systemic Risk Board, I was on the Academic Advisory Council on that, so I was interacting with policymakers quite a bit and also with the European Central Bank. Um, trying to understand what's going on and how could one solve certain problems in the Euro crisis. What is the future emerging in Europe? I think Europe faces uh, big challenges, uh, but I think these challenges can be overcome uh, and certain modifications in the framework have to be made and I think they probably will be made, but slowly it always takes longer than one thinks. What are the challenges you, you just mentioned? So one challenge we describe in the book is that certain the economic way of thinking is very different across different countries in Europe, in particular, you know, across France and Germany. And there has to be a common ground, a common understanding how to approach certain problems. And uh, this was always tapered over the last few decades because before the crisis, we didn't really need to figure this out. But now with the crisis, we have to really figure out, you know, which way to go. And, and then we have to pick one way to go and find a compromise on these dimensions. And I can outline four dimensions which play a major role where the differences really are very stark. One is the difference with rules versus discretion. The Germans, they like very strict rules and safety valves, and whenever there's a shock, there's a safety valve or a shock absorber, which is dealing with that. While the French perspective is much more based on discretion, where the government has the discretion to intervene, and whenever there's a shock, the government will intervene and modi- mitigate, essentially, the shock. So that's one major distinction. And it's a little bit more subtle than rules with discretion, because from the French perspective, They want a lot of discretion in certain dimensions, but in other dimensions, they're very, very strict. So they want to tie their hands very much. So I'll give you an example. So the French are very averse to use some debt restructuring as a shock absorber or a safety valve. And they're also very averse to have some exchange rate or fluctuation or exiting a currency union. So they're committing themselves very strongly in certain dimensions But because they're strongly committed in certain dimensions, they need a lot of discretion in the remaining dimensions. While the Germans want much more, you know, overall much more safety valves built in in the system, which does not require the government to intervene. So that's the first dimension, rules versus discretion. The second dimension is about solidarity versus liability. The French, coming already from the French Revolution, it's very much a solidarity principle Well, if some government is in difficulties, the others will help out. Some 
essentially leading towards joint liability uh, framework. While the Germans have a very strong sense for this liability principle, which means if you are in charge of something, you are liable for it. So you cannot separate you know, being in charge of something or having control from being liable because this leads to misalignment of incentives, this leads to moral hazards and other things. So that's very much emphasized in the German perspective. The third dimension is whenever you're financing problems, it can be a liquidity problem or it can be a solvency problem. So a liquidity problem is just a temporary thing. If you help out, it will be solved. If it's a solvency problem, it's fundamentally something wrong. And typically you don't know it. It's not black and white, it's gray. And But whenever you don't know it, the French will say, oh, it's a liquidity problem. The government should intervene and help out because it's not fundamentally a problem. And the Germans say, no, 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 it's a solvency problem. We have to fundamentally change and reform things. And the fourth dimension essentially is what everybody talks about is this reform effort and austerity from the German side, whereas the French want, you know, Keynesian stimulus. So that's, you know, the fourth dimension. So these are the four dimensions, and all four dimensions have in common that the French like much more government interventionistic approach compared to the Germans, who like more system which governs itself. And what's interesting is that, if I may say that so, is um, this was not always like this. Before the Second World War, it actually was the other way around. And if you think about laissez-faire, laissez-faire economy, that's a French word. So before the Second World War, it was actually more the French, which were much more in a laissez-faire framework, where the government should not intervene, and the Germans had much more interventionistic approach. So a classic, I mean, a very interesting example is that in the 1930s, the French government had to decide whether to intervene a lot or whether to impose austerity, stimulus versus austerity. And at that time, the French government decided to cut back on the government's expenditures. And at that time, it was mostly military expenditures. So they cut back on military expenditures a lot. And when then the Germans in 1940 attacked France, they were very vulnerable to the German attack. And that's why after the war they said, oh no, never any more austerity because it made us vulnerable to the German military attack. In the German side it was differently. In the 19th century there was this cameralism and there was a lot of state intervention. Under the Nazis there was a huge state intervention. And the Germans felt, you know, there was a lot of arbitrariness. The government could just, has a lot of discretion intervene, you know, take people away and put them in concentration camps or any you know, arbitrariness, and there was a sense after the war, we have to remove the arbitrariness for the government. And that's why Germany swung the pendulum swing the other direction and moved much more to a rule-driven framework where the government's power are limited. You have to have you know, certain rules, you have to follow certain rules. But the bigger picture here is that, you know, there are different views, but they are changed, and that's a hopeful picture. So these differences and views are not cast in stone. They can actually change over time. And that means, you know, they can change again in Europe and there's a way to find some common ground in this. And that's why we, we paint a hopeful picture that, you know, unlike many other books which say, oh, Europe is doomed, we don't think so. We think there is a way forward and there is an understanding. One has to understand the other side first and that the book hopes to outline that. And once we understand each other better, then it is actually easier to find some common ground going forward. So you see ways that these two positions, the German, the German and the French positions, actually can 
can can be can be brought closer, and um, a model for the whole European project could be found. Could be found. Yes. So we think so. Um, and you might ask, you know, why do we focus so much on Germany and France? No? There are the 28 European Union states or 19 uh, in the euro area. But it's typically the case that the engine of integration in Europe was essentially France and Germany. It was always the case. And once France and Germany finds common ground, then others fall in line as well. Because many in the peripheral countries think more like the French, many in the Nordic countries think more like the Germans. So, and it was the case in the Euro crisis in 2010, when the Euro crisis started, there was a power shift. So it was initially Brussels was very influential, everything was in a supranational arrangement. And then there were certain decisions taken where you know, the IMF was involved and other decisions, which led to a power shift away from Brussels, from a supranational arrangement to an intergovernmental arrangement. So governments came together on a table and then we're bargaining and every government wants to you know, bring its own trophy home saying, oh, I won this bargaining. So it was much more bargaining among the governments. So it changed the whole dynamics of the European integration process. And this shifted the power away from Brussels to the capitals of the different member states of the European Union. And then in the fall of 2010, there was this famous decision by Angela Merkel German Chancellor and uh, Nicolas Sarkozy, at that time the President of France, to have a haircut on the Greek debt, to have a debt restructuring. And this dramatically changed the power in Europe as well, because from then onwards, the yields in the peripheral countries were jumping up and interest rates were higher. And every policymaker in the peripheral countries knew if they do something which the Germans or the don't like, the Germans can talk to the financial markets and the yields will go wild. So that shifted the power much more to Paris and to Berlin, in particular to Berlin. And that's why the focus of the book is so much on France and Germany, because they're essentially, first of all, they're always the engine of integration in the first place. But secondly, in the Euro crisis, it moved even more away from Brussels to Paris and Berlin. The very big question, can the currency union survive? Yes, we think the currency union will survive. I would not say that you know all member states will stay in the currency union. It could be that one or two leave. I hope not, but I think the currency union will survive. Of course, there is a downside risk if Le Pen is elected in France, and France would even leave. And you see already the interest rate spreads widening currently, because some people get afraid and they bring money out of France into Germany. So currently, if you look at the two-year interest rate for the German government bonds, they're actually minus 0.9%. And that's a sign that you know, people in France are nervous and they're selling the French bonds and they're buying the German bonds. Because if France were to leave, suddenly the, the new exchange rate would favor the German currency relative to the French, new French currency. And so there is a danger there. But I think with a little bit of luck and with the right measures, it can be preserved. I think that will uh, go the right way. There were always challenges. If you look back, some people promote, oh, we should go back to the old snake, exchange rate snake arrangement before the euro. But there were also crises in 92 and 93. These were severe crises as well. And there's a little bit of an attitude saying, oh, we have a problem in Europe, but the problems are mostly fundamental problems 
but then you blame Europe, in, in particular the Euro all the time. And it's not really, the problem is not often the Euro, it is that underlying problems in the labor market or wherever it is, are there problems. At the state level. At the state level, but because politics is so national, uh, it is easy for politicians to blame Europe and the Euro for these problems rather than themselves and saying, oh, you know, we have to fix certain fundamental problems in the labor market, in the product market or whatever it is. We just blame this abstract Euro and at the end uh, it is the Europe, you know, which is suffering from the perception of the average person or of average citizen in Europe. So let me give you an example. Uh, when the Euro crisis erupted, Suddenly, it was always the case that from the core, from Germany, there was a lot of funding going to peripheral countries, like, say, Greece and uh, Spain. But there was also a lot of funding going to other Eastern European countries, let's say, Serbia and all that, all these countries. Uh, then the euro crisis hit and the funding dried up. And suddenly, this was all short-term funding and different funding sources had to be found. And it is actually, you know, through the ECB and Target 2 claims and all this, funding was channeled to these countries through the official sector, because the private sector was not providing it anymore. But there was also a lot of funding, as I said, to outside of the euro area, and this funding also dried up. And there was no European Central Bank to replace the missing private funding now with you know, public funding. So there was some intervention by the IMF and all this, but there was also a sudden stop of funding arrangements. The message I want to get across here is that the problem whether it was inside the Euro, Greece and Spain, or outside Serbia, Bulgaria and so forth, it was, they had similar problems with a sudden stop of funding, private funding in these countries. But it was not whether you're part of the Euro or outside of the Euro, both had the similar problems. So it is not really the Euro which is the fundamental problem. There are often underlying problems which need to be fixed, but it's so easy to blame the Euro. And of course, if you const constantly blame the euro, then something will stick, and especially in perception of the average citizens. Because they say, oh, everybody talks about this problem of the euro, but it might not be necessarily a problem of the euro. What about the case of Greece? We see that the, how the Greek crisis was developing and that all the efforts the European leaders and IMF are putting to kind of make it, make help Greece overcome it, but also it spread a lot of debates about how it is done, about austerity and other reforms. What do you think, where it is going, how, how, is, it, how is it being addressed? Yeah, Greece is, is an outlier within Europe because it was on a path which was very unsustainable before that. So it ran huge public data and the numbers were manipulated. So it's very different from other like Ireland or Spain. So the problems were much more severe in Greece. And that's why it's also so much in the news. Overall, Greece is relatively small. So it could be dealt with just given that its size is so small. Now, there are two perspectives. So one is, if Greece were not in the euro, it would not have gotten all this help from the other European countries. So there were, it would have suffered a much sharper sudden stop but it would have benefited from a depreciation of the currency. So it would have stimulated the economy. But if you talk to many Greek people, what they also appreciate is that being part of Europe and the Euro area, you get also some institutional framework which brings the own house in order. OK, 
Okay, so there was a political system was not geared before to have a sustainable way of going forward. Now, through some arm's length relationship that comes through Brussels and European interventions, there comes some pressure to do some structural reforms. Now, what happened in, in Greece is that severe structural reforms were made and, and incomes dropped significantly. And this is very painful. And in 2014, end of 2014, it seemed like, you know, this is very painful. But then there was a turnaround in January 2015. Things looked better. But then there's, the government was replaced with the current Syriza government, a much more left-leaning government. And the objective of the left-leaning government was to get rid of the reform efforts, especially the finance minister Varoufakis, and move to a more Keynesian stimulus world. And the idea was not just to do it just for Greece, but to do it across all of Europe, peripheral Europe. And the strategy of the new government, Greek government, was to say, okay, if you don't do it, we will threaten to cause a lot of contagion effects to the rest of Europe. And this will create a lot of harm, so you have to really reduce our debt burden, you have to do this, and we don't want to do these reforms really, because they're painful to do. And this strategy went on for six months, but it backfired, essentially. First, because of the strategy, the, the economy which recovered slowed down and went to another tank further. And the hope was that it would spill over to other countries and hence, you know, force the rest of the Europeans to change their mind. Didn't work for two reasons. One was the spillovers did not occur because at that time the this European Central Bank imposed QE, quantitative easing. So whenever the interest rates in Italy or Spain were to go up, the ECB essentially kept a lid on it. So it was not going up. So the threat. And the second thing was, uh, at that time, Spain went already through two years of reform. And there was a left-leaning party like Podemos uh, in Spain. And the government, the conservative government, which went through the reforms, they were afraid if they were to follow the Greek example, then just the left-leaning Podemos party would gain in popularity. So they were actually, surprisingly, peripheral countries became more German than the Germans. And, and that shifted the whole thing. The strategy didn't work out. So it took about six months uh, for the research party to realize that this is not working. And then Varoufakis was removed as finance minister of Greece, replaced with another one, and then moved back to the reformer agenda. Of course, there are still problems there. And there's this big debate, you know, is this government debt level sustainable or not? And if you look at the numbers, you might say, oh my God, it's never sustainable. But the one way to make it sustainable is to just write it off and write it down. That's what the IMF is promoting. But another way uh, to make it sustainable is to just stretch it. To say, okay, you have to pay back in 100 years and the interest rate will be 2% or 1%. Uh, and at some point inflation will be 2%, so it might be even negative real interest rate. So it's just stretched, and that's an alternative way of writing it down. And given the European legal structure, the second way is easier to implement than the first one. So if you're just an economist, you'd say, oh, both is actually fine. But if you think from a legal perspective where it's not allowed to write down debt because of it would involve some, because all the debt is now held by other European governments, so it would be a subsidy towards Greece, which is not allowed officially, but if you do it indirectly through the stretching the debt, then you would do it. So the whole system right now moves to the second arrangement to make the debt sustainable, just to stretch it at a very low interest rate. And essentially, if you stretch it to infinity, you never pay it back. It's the same thing as just writing it off. And, 
that's um, one way. But I agree that there's huge structural reforms, you know, going on and they're painful. Um, from the German side, I would say, oh, because of some extra funding coming from the Europeans, it smoothed it out. It would be even harsher without that. From the Greek side, saying, oh, the Germans impose or the Europeans impose these structural reforms on us. So there are different perspectives. Uh, where are you coming from? What kind of future would you like to see in Europe? I would. So what happened during the Euro crisis, and because everything is blamed towards Europe, the whole excitement about the European integration process is going away. So the average person is thinking much more nationalistic. So when I was young, you know, you were European, you were German and also Bavarian, you know. And you're one of these three, but you're also proud and you want to see. And it was fascinating to have first a common market and you can freely move, you can work wherever you want. And this was just open borders. And this was just a movement and everybody thought this will always go this way. And there will be at some point, there will be some uh, European state. And if you look at the bigger picture in the global scale, you know, there is Asia and there's China, there's the US. And there's no way for individual countries in Europe to be part of this big global picture if they don't find some common ground. So I think if you look at the bigger picture, it has to go this way. But um, at the moment, the momentum is the other direction. And that's something which has to be overcome. Typically, you might you find closer together if you have either a common vision, which is not so big there, or you have an outside threat. Um, and you can see some outside threat in the sense of saying, oh, the United States with Donald Trump essentially saying, we will not defend Europe militarily the same we did before. And Europe was free riding on the US in terms of military expenditures. Uh, so Europe has to expand its military capacity. And that's one thing which is much more efficiently done at the European scale than at the international, international scale. So that's one way you can see, oh, we have to strengthen our, our way going forward. The other thing is there might be a threat coming from the East. Uh, you know, there's always, and that's why this might be also a way to say, oh, we have to refocus. Perhaps it's not only economics. We have to think bigger picture, also geopolitical and also militarily. And we need some cooperation on that side. And there might be other elements. We don't need so much cooperation. We can have more national freedom on these other dimensions where we don't agree. And sometimes it helps not to have only a single crisis, but to have multiple crises because you can make some package deals. Let me give you an example. Greece and Germany might look very different on the euro crisis. The interests are not aligned at all. But on the refugee crisis, they have similar views. And the same thing with Italy and Germany. So there might be saying, okay, you know, I can give you some money to Greece because of some refugee issues. And the fact that you have now two crises, not only the Euro crisis, but also the refugee crisis or some Eastern threat or something might make it much easier to find a compromise also on the Euro questions. Because the other dimensions where, you know, one party gives in and, you know, gets compensation on that. So sometimes having more crisis might seem more daunting, but actually it's also a chance to find some package deals you couldn't achieve otherwise. Thank you so much. Is there anything I didn't ask you about the future of Europe? Do you have thoughts you want to share? I think we covered pretty much uh, many dimensions, especially in, you know, not only economics, but going beyond economics. And 
I think what also Europe needs is more a common vision and excitement uh, among the population that has to somehow come, come back. And sometimes I think of um, doing something together, which individual nations cannot do, but something positive like what the US did in the 60s, shooting somebody to the moon, where some of the population is excited, saying, oops, we want to achieve some big common thing, which you know Germany cannot do alone, France cannot do alone. But I haven't found yet what is the moon shoot uh, Europe should do, where everybody would be excited like not just watching soccer or something, but something, you know, or this will be some technological breakthrough and Europe would, can achieve it together, but not in the United Nations. Thank you so much. Thank you. Podcast, a project of the Center for the Study of Europe at Boston University, funded by a Getting to Know Europe grant from the European Commission delegation in Washington, D.C.